0: I don't know what this says about my psychology. Um, Nothing good. But sometimes when I sit up here, my impulse is to say, you don't scare me. (laughs) That's a segue to nowhere, but... uh, It actually is lovely to be with you, to be practicing together. Um, yeah, I'm not scared. We're like in a, a field of practice together. That's precious. So uh, last night it was it was touching to. Uh, Uh, to hear Brian talk about um, um, bodhichitta compassion. And um, it was touching because uh, I've known him over a period now of many years and he's like actually living it, you know? And, uh, yeah, we trained together, we've taught together over the years, and I feel like, uh, he's been patient with me, yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, I was just reflecting on, like, oh, yeah, is it, like, the thread of compassion is really quite evident in his life. And, um, that capacity to, to open the heart, um, is one of the, the kind of preconditions of that is the, the stability of mind. That compassion offered from a mind that is bouncing around, that is unstable, is a, is a kind of, um, can take distorted forms. So, we, we usually think about, um, about enlightenment as, as that which ends our problems, right? It's like, here I am, I've got all these problems, I will practice and maybe something, whatever that might be, enlightenment, comes and puts an end to my problems. But I think it's, it's reversed. Enlightenment arises when we have no problems. And now what on earth could that possibly mean to have no problems? Does it mean that we suspend the first noble truth that there is suffering? That can't be. What I take it to mean, having no problems, meanings, um, creating no uh, friction whatsoever with experience. And as we um, learn to, to create less and less friction, with experience, the, the unity of mind, samadhi, concentration arises naturally. That concentration, uh, like so much of the goodness uh, uh, in this path is the fruit of letting go. And so that's what I'll, I'll speak about tonight. You know, we, we often think um, in the same reversed way. We think about, I wanna get concentrated so I can get happy. But in the way that concentration is actually depicted it's, it comes after some sense of well-being, some sense of life being enough. And so we have to, um, to have peace, we must make peace. Yeah. We must make peace. And in this case, it's really with, with the human condition So the the um, maybe uh, opposite of uh, this this unification of mind is the the kind of restlessness that runs quite uh, deeply in the mind and said, really only to fade once we're very free maybe we know, like sometimes it's very obvious and sometimes it's quite subtle, but um, there's this sense of we're almost always waiting for something. Like, just energetically, it may be very subtle, but we're just leaning into the next moment because it's somewhere in the future that holds our salvation. And there is a way in which um, meditation can feel like waiting, uh, poised at the... The ledge of the present moment, and I, I I do actually feel like theres there's something about that word waiting that works, except it's it's waiting uh, for nothing. Yeah. I sometimes ask myself. Um, If nothing ever got one iota better than this, could the heart be at peace? And remarkably, the Buddha's answer to that question is yes. Now, I... I, I um, am wary of some of the kind of generalizations about our culture, the sense of like, it's always going, getting worse or something like that. And, uh, and the truth is there's progress on many different fronts when you look at it, even though there, there's a real specter of threat for us as a species. Um, but I want to be careful with generalizations, but one place where I feel comfortable generalizing is around just the, the fragmentation of our attention in technological culture. And, um, uh, heard a um a teacher who who teaches a lot of um you know year after year three month retreats and a lot of long practice and and she said that she feels like people's capacity actually to settle is is eroding over time and one of the potential explanations is the just the the kind of fragmentation we experience with a kind of compulsive technological use. And so I'm not, I'm not like anti-technology, but I do want to just acknowledge that, um, um, insofar as, as stock prices are highly correlated, with the time that company gets us to spend on a screen, there's a perverse incentive structure. So this is um, one of the the kind of commentators on this issue, Tristan Harris said, um, technology has produced amazing products that have benefited the world enormously but these companies are also caught in a zero sum race for our finite attention, which is needed to make money. Forced to outperform competitors, they must increasingly use persuasive techniques to keep us glued. Unfortunately, what's best for capturing our attention isn't best for our well-being. I had a uh, unhealthy relationship with my iPhone. (laughs) And I tried, I actually tried successfully to moderate the effects, you know, and to use it less and to, you know, have one of those applications that like uh, um, is... um, times how much time. And at some point I actually felt like um, uh, just, the, just the possibility of entertaining myself at any point in my life was not a burden I wanted to live with. Yeah, And you know, I normally don't, in the context of retreat, don't talk about life outside of the the retreat context but um as as a friend said like he actually feels like some of the the evolution of technology is an existential threat to mindfulness yeah and so i i um uh, so i got a flip phone <laughs> which i hate it's like if I wanted to tell you I'll be there at five, that would take like <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> but I swear I was, as soon as I got it, I was happier. And at some level, our attention is like the most precious resource we have as human beings. And so concentration, samadhi, arises out of many causes and conditions, and we want to, um, to be uh, cautious in what we do to our attention, with our attention. So um, life can can feel um, so so relentless. The stimulation is is like we don't always realize it, but it's like the where the world is always touching us sight and sound and sensation and smells and thought and feeling. And that kind of like bombardment um, is, can be fatiguing. And the sense like the, the kind of flood of change and part of what is soothing healing about samadhi is it—it it, it um, is a kind of form of seclusion from the changingness of the world. Even though samadhi doesn't stop anything from changing, the number of objects that we're aware of that are arising and passing in each moment is narrowed. And it has this kind of effect of being like, sometimes it's like shelter from the storm. Now, as I'll talk about, um, that's not the only kind of samadhi, that's not the only form of unification of the mind, but, the Buddha said, this is, not, this is not like the ultimate medicine, this, the steadying of the mind, but it is uh, supportive of liberating insight. It is shelter from the storm of change. This practice, um, really uh, relies to a a deep extent on um, the insights that we're tracing out. A lot of what we're pointing to is actually inaccessible, but through the door of samadhi, that we actually have to get still enough to see the unfolding process of body and mind And so it's really, for me, like the sense of the unification of the mind is what turns the Dharma into something more than merely a philosophy. It actually becomes um, alive as a path. Becomes alive as a path. Now, I always want to be cautious because um, generally when we hear concentration, we think of the enemy of that as uh as thinking, and um you know, as meditators to me it it seems like we're we're almost like embarrassed that we think, you know and we probably all know that moment of like finding ourselves in daydream number 7022 and it's like you know it's like a subtle wave of shame just encases the body and then we like sort of like in this like depressed, defeated way, drag our attention back to the breath, you know, it's like, uh, you know. Thoughts, there are no enemies in experience. Yeah. The process by which we get lost in discursive thought is itself born of unconsciousness. It's the, the slide from the object of attention into uh, becoming identified with the realm of thought is not a conscious process. And it makes no sense to indict ourselves for that. So there's no shame in this. And sometimes actually, as you find yourself caught in thinking, you can be good to just like, just forgive yourself actually, like in that moment. And we want to look at our relationship to thought. um, Because we, um, It's like we we place so much hope in thinking. It often feels like it's the only problem-solving tool that we have. We're confronted with the vicissitudes of the world with, with pain or heartbreak, and it just feels like I have to think this through. And uh, even our dharma practice can get so bound up, at, like they, even dharma stories are ultimately unsatisfying. Yeah. The uh, Nobel laureate uh, Daniel Kahneman said, um, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. while we're thinking about it, everything feels a little important, yeah? And we have to like break some of that spell somehow. Now, when we start to get quiet, we can see that the compulsion to tell stories, to be oriented, is a kind of attempt to maintain control or safety or security. To actually let go of the realm of discursive thought leaves us very deeply exposed to the world. So porous. And you know, sometimes I even feel like there can be a certain kind of, um, of terror in not speaking my life to myself. Like something arises and it just feels almost irresistible that I actually tell a story about what it is, where it comes from, what its resolution is. And part of what we're learning to do is um, to surf some of that intensity without needing to to default into storytelling. the further we get from our, like, homeostatic set point, the more driven we are to talk about experience. And so, we're actually practicing... uh, bringing experience to a sense of, of completion, of safety, wordlessly. Yeah. To, to allow experience to pass through the mesh of our being without having to neutralize it through story without having to explain and stay oriented in each moment. And it starts to feel more and more safe to do that. The kind of radical um, vulnerability of the human condition feels we like acclimatize to that. There are a lot of um, values of of this uh, samadhi. And um, sometimes I feel like maybe the most important thing that it does for people is is it uh, provides faith to keep going. I remember one meditator sort of like coming back from a retreat and like settled in and she said like and she is somebody who had a lot of self-doubt and she came back and said like uh she said like oh i can do this and that kind of sense of of confidence in one's path that sense that this is not like all kind of empty smoke and mirrors and like there's a really something here there's really a way of living that feels very different from what we've grown accustomed to. The mind is really capable of more than we would guess. And it it, uh, fosters a kind of uh, confidence, confidence to keep going. So um, because we don't, uh, we don't recognize how deeply we live in story, uh, and it, it was, as Brian was pointing to, like we, ha- we actually have to learn, like develop a, a, a sense of what it really means to be present Because sometimes what we take to be presence is there's a thin film of narrative, yeah? And the truth is, like, unless we train ourselves, I think the default position for humans is to kind of... um, to locate one's life in one's story, in... The, the many narratives we tell about who we are and what life is and what we want. And so here we're getting like so close to experience. And that there's a certain kind of, like the heart starts to relax when we start to get close in that way. Even if we're connecting with difficulty, something in the heart relaxes when we genuinely connect with what's here. So concentration is, um, it's sometimes distinguished from mindfulness and they say like, well, concentration is narrow and mindfulness is broad. But um, that's, as far as I can tell, that's not, not too, so accurate and that, that, um, that concentration comes in very narrow flavors where we, we get very focused in a, it's usually a very small spatial location of experience and everything else can fall away But concentration can also come in the form of uh, just uh, a much more expansive kind of awareness. And really to, to be with experience, to be with experience, to be mindful of sights and sounds and sensations without it feeling like we're being batted around by the, bombardment of sensory experience. Mindfulness needs some stability, some samadhi, some way of actually soaking in deeply to what's happening moment by moment so that we're not glancing off the surface of sensations, of sounds, of sight. Otherwise, mindfulness can start to feel like a little frenzied. So there's this other flavor of concentration, khanaka samadhi, a moment by moment concentration where the, we're aware of, of many different objects, but the attention is not getting stuck to any of them. Normally the attention sticks to discursive thought to words in the head. And it actually takes a certain kind of samadhi, a certain kind of letting go to allow thought to arise and pass without it capturing the attention. So the Buddha said, uh, there's no deep samadhi without wisdom, no wisdom without deep samadhi. But for the one with both deep samadhi and wisdom, they're in the presence of uh, Nibbana. now um, there are there are many flavors of of uh, concentration and is generally associated with with pleasure um, in the uh, one of the the suttas um, Buddha described this. Uh, said uh, Just like a lake with spring water welling up from within, having no inflow from east, west, north, or south, so that the cool fountain of water welling up from within would permeate and pervade, surfu- suffuse and fill that lake with cool waters, there being no part of the lake unpervaded by cool waters, so too the monastic permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. There's nothing of their entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of concentration. That sounds good. And yet, remarkably, even rapturous bliss can get old. There's really only one thing that doesn't get old, peace. And so the Buddha asked us not to get fixated on this, not to turn this into a kind of uh, the end goal or to kind of f- um, fetishize bliss. Yeah. But the flip side is, um, I, I find that people are, are too worried about getting attached to pleasure, to settling, to concentration, you know? Like the Dharma police are like very vigilant about pleasure, you know? And it's like anything like good, where like the first thought we have is, I'm not supposed to get attached, you know? But it's okay, we're gonna get attached anyway, you know? And the kind of attachment that happens with this is actually um, because this is the fruit of letting go, We we notice when we're starting to get attached. There are, you know, war stories of people getting so hooked around concentration. And, um, I, I, I had, uh, you know, me, uh, somebody I meditated with and um, he, he um, when he was a kid, he had uh, some very dramatic experience of the mind settling. And it was 35 years later of practicing in a dedicated way. And he said, for those 35 years, he was trying unsuccessfully to get back to that moment. That's tragic. But I feel a little bit like, all right, he suffered so that we don't have to, yeah? We don't need to do that, yeah. We don't need to try to engineer bliss in that way. My experience is that actually, more than getting attached to the pleasure of the mind settling, we get attached to the egoic titillation of it. Because it feels like, oh, this is progress. And it's like, I get my little samadhi badge, you know. And that's actually more where the, I see the attachment coming in, like a demonstration of our Goodness as a meditator, yeah, so we wanna we want look out how how does the mind hold um, relate to to all of this we're We're trying as i said to uh to get happy enough with this moment, and uh, Suzuki roshi said um to live is enough yeah. much of the development of this is uh around this is like I know this is not a fun answer, but it's patience, perseverance, you know. and It's actually hard to tell when we're moving towards settling, towards samadhi, and not always so, so clear. And the, it's like the, the mind is unpredictable when it starts to really gather. And so we just, we just actually keep going And sometimes it feels like just uh, you know, yeah, just hard kind of uh, labor, but we keep going without straining. We let go of the delusion that uh, it is our will that is determining the level of settling. Maybe you know that experience of sitting here and you're just like, I'm going to get concentrated this sit. Yeah? That's the plan. Right? And it feels like. You know, sort of like in the control tower of the mind, like headquarters, it's like we put all of the pressure on our willfulness to get concentrated. But it's a, it's a dependent arising. Yeah, the unification of mind is not governed by our wishes, but by many different factors um, that are outside our will. And we bring a kind of sincerity and a willingness, some patience, some letting go. And then we, um, we take what's offered by the mind. Part of how the mind starts to gather is that um, though the undigested past re-arises in the course of our meditative life. So, where we've caused harm, where we've been harmed, where we've failed to understand some piece of our life with wisdom, with love, where that understanding of wisdom and love has failed. This remains in a sense, undigested in the heart mind. And it, we're asked to, uh, to bless our past with the wisdom and love that was not there in that moment. And this is how we start to come to more and more sense of completeness with our past. And as a consequence, there's less urgency from the discursive mind, It's like so much of that memory, it it almost feels like we're kind of uh, nursing some wound. And we think about things to um, raise that wound to the surface to be healed. And over the months and years of a Dharma life, we, start to feel more and more like the past is the past. The drama of me and I am-ness and the compulsive attempts to manicure the self for others, in one's own mind, the kind of clinging associated with that fades. Yeah, we'll talk more about it. It's like the the um, the kind of uh, preoccupation with with. Uh, with curating the self starts to fade, it becomes less compelling. And so many of our, the kind of intrusive thoughts as we sit are in some way um, trying to consolidate and protect our, the sense of who we are. And so as that starts to, that's that whole um, kind of realm of, of anxiety and performance starts to um, lose its emotional charge, uh, we can settle more easily as we live more deeply in alignment with our values, as we we sort of like harmonize our behavior with our deepest intentions, um, there's, uh, we live with less and less regret in our life. that doesn't mean we're perfect by any stretch, but the sense of like, So one of my mentors said, like, if you act out of, in alignment with your values, you can just forget about it. If you act out of alignment with those values, it re-arises. It's like something else that needs to be digested. And so we learn to live with more and more of a sense of of non-regret And um, we become more courageous in experiencing the arising of intensity. kensei Rinpoche. You should experience everything totally, never withdrawing into ourselves as a marmot hides in a hole. This practice releases tremendous energy, which is usually constricted by the process of maintaining fixed reference points. Referentiality is the process by which we retreat from the direct experience of everyday life. Every moment of meditation is unique and full of potentiality. You have a sense of like what it's like to meet life without so many of the reference points of what should be, what must be, who I am, what I like, what I can handle, where I am, what I am. So we experience life more completely. There's, there's less and less of a trace of experience. And the moment, just the, the bottomlessness of the moment opens to us. This can't be engineered This is not a product of our will. Sajjan Brahm. Stillness means lack of movement. Since will causes the mind to move, to experience stillness, one must remove all will, all doing, all control. If you grasp a leaf on a tree and try your hardest to hold it still, no matter how hard you try, you'll never succeed. There will always be some vibration caused by slight tremors in your muscles. However, if you don't touch the leaf and just protect it from the breeze, the leaf comes to a natural state of stillness. just sit for a moment So please, um, please pick up whatever words are useful and leave the rest behind totally.